All right, Luke 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So, Father, this morning we thank you for your word, and I do pray that it would pierce each one of us to the deepest place of our heart. Father, that you would speak encouragement and conviction and healing and encouragement, uh, whatever you want to yeah, speak into our hearts this morning. I just pray that you would give uh, wisdom and that you would open us up to hear you. Father, thank you that you want us to know uh, you, that you want us to know you as the greatest treasure and to open up uh, the knowledge of your will so that we would follow you. We love you, Lord, and thank you that you loved us first. Amen. Thanks, Scott. Everybody, it's Scott's birthday tomorrow. Yeah. You look really good for 78 years old. Did I hear you say yikes? Oh, no, earlier during the text being read. Oh, Jane. Jane said, yikes. I agree. And in the words of my mother-in-law during prayer this morning, pre-gathering prayer, may John hit a touchdown. She was attempting to give a Super Bowl-themed prayer and nailed it. I don't know about you, but I have noticed in myself and in the world today, people are hungry for results, but we are very hesitant when it comes to the process. We want results, but we are hesitant to engage with the process. That's true of all aspects of life. People want wealth without work. They want a six-pack without soreness. Uh, we want to feel alive with outgoing through the agony that life often hands us. We want to be spiritual without sacrifice. But if you've been around long enough, you know wisdom tells us to pay attention to the process. The results themselves aren't all that interesting. The, the process is. And what you will often find is that within any process or life journey worth taking. There's hardship, there's obscurity, priorities are challenged, there's urgency and focus required. Kids these days, <laughs> sounding old, want to be YouTubers. One of the most famous, Jimmy Donaldson, Mr. Beast. And what you find even within Mr. Beast's story is a whole lot of work in obscurity. For years and years and years, that guy was uploading videos nobody watched until eventually he figured it out and it came together. I was listening to an interview earlier this week with uh, Ed Norton and Rick Rubin. Uh, that was my soundtrack to Shoveling Snow, a three-hour conversation. And in Edward Norton's story, you see this obscurity and hardship and sacrifice and focus to become the actor that he now is. We often will look for easier roads, but there are no shortcuts in life. And again, to quote my father-in-law, though this series, The Hard Sayings of Jesus, is somewhat of a bummer, yes, 
It's in the hard seeings that we get the truth about discipleship and apprenticeship with Jesus. And so today, what we're going to look at is uh, roads and rabbis and the call of Christ. And typically, and always, the context around Luke 9 matters. What is going on when Jesus says these sayings? Well, there's a lot that happens in Luke 9. I mean, for heaven's sakes, it's 62 verses long. And so in Luke 9, you see that Jesus is transfigured. You see Jesus foretells his death. You see the disciples are on one of their benders about who's going to be the greatest. So they're arguing. They're not getting the point of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And then you see Jesus desiring to go to Samaria, sending disciples ahead, and they reject Christ. And in this moment, earlier in Luke 9, he says that he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. So in Luke's account of the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do, there's this pivotal moment where Jesus is out and about ministering, and all of a sudden it says his face is set to go to Jerusalem. He is now intentionally taking every step towards the cross. And it's in that moment that we find him on a road. And the road is a central metaphor in all of Scripture. It's central within Luke's story and life in general. Life is a highway. I'm going to ride it all night long. I'm on a highway to hell, some have sung. Take me home, country roads, to the brave, where I belong, West Virginia. What does he say? Mount Mama? Okay, on the road again. And I could go on and on, but I'll stop there. I'll stop there. But what we've seen in, in cultural commentator and pastor Mark Sayers uh, notices in our lifetime, we've taken this, this kind of broad metaphor of the road as a journey and metaphor for life, and we've kind of shrunk it down to just about ourselves. Mark Sayers, he's an Australian pastor, theologian, cultural critic commentator. He says, throughout history, various religious traditions have used the imagery of pilgrimage or journey to describe spiritual development. These journeys were focused on an eternal destination, a spiritual transformation of the individual. Today, however, the pilgrimage is all about the individual's own life journey. The contemporary self does not have to literally be on the move to be on the road. Being on the road is primarily a state of mind, one that constantly is dissatisfied, looking for the next big thing, living in incompleteness, always engaged in a quest for a sense of significance. This search for meaning becomes even more problematic in a culture which flies or flees from objective truth, which fears authority and the holding of belief too strongly. He's describing the world that we now live in. And that world isn't necessarily unreligious, but it's religion on our terms. Rabbi Shmuley Botich says, we have a generation whose principal desire is to feel God rather than worship him. And so this road with Jesus entails hardship, obscurity, priorities, urgency, and focus. But to get to the actual hard sayings, we need to also understand what's going on with the first century rabbinical system because that plays into this desire and call to follow Jesus. So, for a moment, we put on our history hats, okay? 
and the year is about 600-ish, 580 BC, and Israel is now in exile. And so they're displaced, and what happens in their displacement is these uh, buildings and, and gatherings called synagogue developed where there was discipleship and apprenticeship and teachers would rise up. There's a 600-year history of the rabbinical system in the writing of Luke's gospel. And so these synagogues pop up and they form as central to the communal life of the Jewish people. And what happened is teachers known as rabbis rose up and they were those who were devoted to Torah. They would learn, memorize, teach, and interpret scripture and God's law to God's people. This is a fun book, the Cyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature. You know, one of those books that you just have on your nightstand to probably put yourself to sleep. It says, by degrees, attachment to the law sank deeper and deeper into the national character. Hence, the law became deep and intricate study. Certain men rose to acknowledged eminence for their ingenuity in explaining, their readiness in applying, their facility, faculty, facility in quoting, and their clearness in offering solutions of the difficult passages of written statutes. And so as that happened, which reminds me so much of today, followings would develop around rabbis, much like celebrity or influencer pastors and preachers today that have enormously large followings around their personality, their style, their production, whatever. But how did you become a rabbi? Uh, there was no associated accreditation of really good rabbis, the A-A-R-G-R. Uh, it didn't, it, it didn't exist then, it doesn't exist now. But I'm thinking of starting it. Uh, and if you would like to invest, we can talk afterwards. To become a rabbi, one would simply attach to a rabbi. They would follow. There was a saying that developed and there's some controversy around it. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Um, that one would follow after a rabbi along the road, along life, they would hear, they would listen, they would observe, and they would imitate. Over time, if a student showed promise, they could be appointed to a position and begin their own study and practice within synagogue. And so a system, over the course of about 600 years, developed, evolved, and in some ways also devolved, hence you have uh, some of the strongest words that Jesus gives are to those teachers in that time. Uh, we have the phrase, the blind leading the blind. Yeah, Jesus coined that about the rabbinical system and teachers that had no clue what they're talking about and leading others into a ditch. Uh, I believe Anthony's going to teach on the woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, uh, in every way in which this system had a tendency to devolve. And again, there's similarities with today. And so, that's a long introduction. We see everybody's on a road. It's a central metaphor for life, spiritual transformation. Ours has shrunk down to our individuality and self-expression and self-development. Uh, there's a rabbinical system in which people were attempting to attach to Jesus, or Jesus was calling others to follow after him. And like today, there's plenty of rabbis. And within these three encounters in Luke 9, uh, what we get is clarity on who Christ is and what his call is for followers then and now. And so the first we see is this. They're going along the road. 
someone says to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Perhaps it's a young student showing a little bit of promise, thinking, you know, I could, I could do this rabbi thing. And he's going, I'm going to attach myself to Jesus and follow you. And did you see Jesus' response? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is just my reading of Scripture. But I read that, and I, I imagine this guy being like, you talking to me? What? what? Like I said, I'll follow you. And then Jesus gives this, like, I don't have anywhere to sleep. What is that? What? Like, it, it's seemingly disconnected. But what Jesus is showing this individual, what he's signing up for, what it might entail. And there's a couple things going on. First, Jesus is identifying himself as Messiah. And in using the title Son of Man, that was a, a phrase that was packed with um, just a lot. It's, it's a phrase that comes from the book of Daniel that anticipates the coming Messiah. And Jesus, it's one of his favorite phrases, titles, uses for himself. It identifies him both as, as man and divine, that he had come for a purpose. So he's identifying as Messiah. And two, that in following him, there's hardship and obscurity that he entered into that his followers ought to expect. So this... And really, this alone, though, there's so much more within the Gospels, just destroys, in my view, the prosperity gospel, one would, that would say if you just simply have enough faith, if you just believe God enough, then you will be, and there's various versions of it, happy, healthy, and wealthy. Again, there's, that's a very crass explanation. There's multi, it's kind of like a seven-layer dip of a variety that you might get with, and I don't know why I looked at you, Anthony, <laughs> our resident Mexican. Um, oh, oh, too far, too far. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it flies in the face of a prosperity gospel that would promise all of that for those who simply follow or have faith or believe certain things. And if the pendulum swings back to the other side of a poverty gospel, you can just listen to Anthony's sermon last week because he covered that as well a little bit. What Jesus is getting at is that following him gives no guarantee of life's outcomes, and it challenges our desire for satisfaction and security in stuff. There's something innate within the human condition that wants to find satisfaction and security in stuff. And again, to reference the sermon last week, that all of us in this room, by nature of being American, are rich. Um, all of us having roofs over our head and and clothes on our back are pretty wealthy. Um, so we've got it pretty good. And, and the temptation and tendency, I would say probably in amplified form for us today is to find security and safety in solace, in stuff, in accumulation, and what we have externally. And Jesus is showing us and this first follower that uh, there's no guarantee of that. And this is, in my opinion, one of the great mysteries of life is that Jesus never guarantees us life outcomes. There's no equation. Again, you have Proverbs and there's probabilities, there's a way in which to live, but that never guarantees an outcome. 
eat all of the best food and pray before every single meal does not guarantee you will be cancer-free. Reading your Bible, praying, working hard does not guarantee that you will have wealth. Um, Being holy and doing all the Christian moral things you're supposed to do does not guarantee any of us anything at all. And Jesus is showing by his own life that hardship and obscurity is to be expected, and there's something in that that develops a soul with God and others. C.S. Lewis in his book Screwtape Letters uh, says, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. Or to quote a slightly more modern philosopher, I think Tyler Durden from Fight Club, things you own end up owning you. Again, I was listening to Ed Norton, so that's where that comes from. So Jesus says, in this individual desiring to follow him, you can expect hardship and you can expect obscurity. There's no guarantee of a life's outcome. Second, and maybe the most difficult in these three interactions, is Jesus calls an individual in verse 59, says, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I don't know your reaction or your flinch to that. There's probably some that are like, that's my life verse. I don't like my family. And Jesus gives me permission to, you know, give him the bird. So thank you, Lord. Let's go. Probably most of us, though, go, at a minimum, go, huh? And others of us, this is like, that hurts. What? What What are you getting at Jesus? Jesus says, bearing your father is an ultimate priority. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, I will invite you into, uh, we, we, we took off our history hats and we set that aside, and now we're going to take out along our uh, theology hats and put those on, and I'm going to invite you into a discussion around this text. Uh, there's a variety of interpretations, and I think all of them are attempting to soften it a little bit, but it calls for a deep dive on what Jesus is getting after here. There's four possibilities. Number one is this, that the father's still alive and wanting, or this son is waiting for his father to pass. Um, Some commentators and interpreters uh, see the seriousness of Jewish life and family commitments and go, there's no way Jesus actually uh, meant that. And what this guy is doing is waiting for his father to die. But to quote uh, R.H. Stein, one of the commentators, there's no hint of that in the text. So I think that's one possibility, but maybe the least likely if we're putting percentages on it. Uh, Most commentators and interpreters do one of two things, which is possibilities two and three. The most popular is that um, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead, or he's talking about a Jewish custom of burying for the second time after about a year of internment to explain all that in maybe clear language. Joel Green, a biblical commentator, he says this in an Anthony-sized quote. How can the dead bury their own dead? This is normally taken metaphorically. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. 
This reading would make good on the change of life for which Jesus calls, particularly with regard to the reconstruction of one's dispositions and behaviors and of one's self-identity. Contemporary Jewish, and this is a real word, funerary, let's just say funeral. It's the same thing, but commentators like big words. Customs make possible another reading. The practice of primary burial in which the corpse was placed in a sealed tomb followed by a secondary burial following a 12-month period of decomposition of bones were collected and reburied in an ossuary or bone box is well attested with the additional 12 months between burial and reburial providing for the completion of the work of mourning. According to this reckoning, Jesus' proverbial saying would refer to the physically dead in both instances. Let those already dead in the family tomb rebury their own dead. In either case, Jesus' disrespect for such a venerable practice rooted in Old Testament law is matched only by the authority he manifests by asserting the priority of the claims of discipleship in the kingdom of God. In this way, Luke brings to a close this introduction to the journey narrative by asserting through the repetition of rigorous demands the nature of commitment requiring, uh, required of those who would follow Jesus on the journey. So that's possibility two and three and fourth. And I'm just spitballing here. Is that Jesus sees something in this individual in this particular time that he pinpoints and calls out. And the reason I think that is because of the sermon I listened to last week from Anthony Garcia about the rich young ruler. Jesus does not require or call every single disciple to this exact same process, but perhaps, and I could be wrong, okay? Fully, completely putting that on the table. Joel Green is probably more right than I am. But I think it is possible that Jesus sees something in this man that he pinpoints and calls out for the cause of discipleship. That could be also version one, two, or three. That Jesus identifies an unhealthy attachment that is preventing this person from engaging in and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And we can see that in that all scriptures testifying of one's story and doesn't inherently contradict itself. So there's this call to love God and love neighbor. There's this call in 1 Timothy 5 to take care of one's own household. And I don't think Jesus is contradicting that in any way. And burial was a critical part of caring for a family. And yes, Jesus does divide, but Jesus also can unite. Um, if you look at uh, one account that I, I particularly love of Peter's mother-in-law being sick, and Jesus healing her, and then she makes them all food, um, which is just a wonderful story with a lot of little wrinkles and nuggets in there, and you wonder <laughs> what kind of mother-in-law was she? There's a lot of low-hanging fruit of jokes of like Peter being either disappointed or grateful that Jesus healed her. I have a wonderful mother-in-law, so I'm not saying anything there, um, but what's clear in this particular passage in Jesus's engagement with this particular individual that I think is universal is that there is a call to evaluate our priorities and to have urgency within life. Priorities in that when Jesus calls us to follow him, 
he, he's number one. And life never takes on a list as easy as like, well, Jesus is number one, family is number two, friends are number three, and then work's number four. Like, I don't know if you've lived much of this life. It's never as clear as that. It's always a mishmash of everything all together at once. But what Jesus continually does is asks us and calls us to evaluate our priorities and what is often shown through any type of honest evaluation is we often honor, prioritize, elevate things other than God to preeminence that affect our worship of him and our service and witness to our neighbors. And family is maybe one of, if not the most preeminent thing that we can idolize. Take a good gift of God, make it ultimate, everything gets out of whack. To where our families are our everything and what we live and breathe and die on and ultimately can crush us or we crush them from that kind of pressure. And Jesus, again, in this process of discipleship is reorienting everything in our lives, showing he is ultimate, the kingdom of God is to be, be proclaimed, and there's this urgency that isn't hurry, which Jesus embodies perfectly. We humans go, yeah, there's urgency, and so we like really ramp up, and we want to get a program, and we're like, ah, and we get all on edge and anxious about it all, and Jesus somehow had ultimate urgency without being hurried or in a rush. Chew on that for a while. That's my own personal process right now of learning patience again. Um, and so this final then encounter goes like this. Uh, somebody comes up, I'll follow you, verse 61, wherever you go. Uh, but Lord, let me first say farewell to those at my home. Kind of almost exemplifying what the individual in the first step was being called to reorient towards. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So far, hardship, priorities, urgency, and here Jesus is showing the importance of focus. Uh, he would later say in Luke 17 to one of the like, ultimate stories, mysteries of the Old Testament, Lot's wife turning to a pillar of salt, looking back on Sodom and Gomorrah, a uh, wild story. Jesus uses that in Luke 17, again, to show the necessity and priority of focus on him and his kingdom. Uh, Paul uses the metaphors in 2 Timothy of a, um, of a soldier, of an athlete, of a farmer, and the call for focus on the kingdom of God and the need in one's life, again, as we analyze our priorities, to within that, there's clarity around what we're ultimately focused on, who and what. And so hearing these claims and call of Christ, what rings out yet again is a three-word sen three sentence that is, often becomes cliche, and it's just simply that Jesus is Lord. Meaning this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who came made these bold, audacious claims, did these bold, audacious things. He is Lord, and Lord means king, ruler, 
potentate, if you want a fancy word. He, he's everything. Overall. And it's dishonest for us to be okay with aspects of Christ or some of the claims of Christ, but ignore the call of Christ on our lives. I think this is something we all can struggle with, is we have cognitive assent without real-life obedience, which is an aspect of unbelief. Like, okay, Jesus, I understand maybe up here a little bit of what you say, and I agree with a lot of it, but allowing that to dig into the areas of our life that are resistant or calloused or my way of doing things is unbelief and hypocrisy. And if there's anything people hate, especially in others, it's hypocrisy, right? And there's real criticisms leveled against real Christians and leaders and all that about hypocrisy. It's sickening. It's maddening. And I don't know why. Well, I have some theories. It's so easy to notice in others, but hard to deal with in ourselves. Everybody else's hypocrisy is a problem. Mine, there's justifications and reasons behind it all. And what we see in, in the good news is that in all of this, every disciple of Jesus has the same call, and that is to attach ourselves to him. And what Jesus does not require he does not require us to be perfect. He does not require us to be all together. He does not require us to have every single question answered and, and you know, perfectly ace every theological test. And you, again, the good news is as you read the Gospels, you see the disciples, like us, don't have it all together. They have their questions, they have their doubts, they have their jockeying for position and their disagreements. And there's one who betrayed him, but Jesus is asking for allegiance and obedience and attachment to him. And so as we're drawn to this Jesus, we need to understand the demands of Jesus. If we want the results of spiritual maturity, if we want compelling witness, if we want the life of Christ to ooze out of our very being into our workplaces, our families, if we want to embody the way of Jesus, then we ought to see the process Jesus puts disciples through, which is the most beautiful and difficult journey you will ever embark on. Following Jesus is the best, worst, hardest, most beautiful, glorious thing ever. Is it not? Last week, week and a half ago, I read through a book that has become one of my favorites called A Quiet Mind to Suffer With by John Andrew Bryant. It's his own story of dealing with uh, mental illness, OCD in particular, and, and how he learned Christ in the midst of his entire life falling apart. He's a younger than me guy. And he wrote this that just hit me and had me crying like a weirdo on a plane. He says, the Lord had not committed himself to my plans. The Lord had committed himself to me. Learning the difference was what, what, was what was to make up the long arc of the Christian life. We are not most changed by what we think 
or feel or by what happened, we are most changed by what we depend on. And nothing has disfigured me more cruelly than my dependence on myself. Nothing has disfigured me more cruelly than dependence on myself. In these hard sayings of Jesus that clarify his call of following him, we learn this over time. And what's really gracious and merciful of Jesus is he doesn't hide difficulty in the fine print. Right? One of the craziest developments of the last few years is the, the proliferation of online gambling. And... You know, was, oh, you can win $200. And so you might have a gambling problem and you 1-800-GAMBLE is bad. And blah, 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 blah. Or you sign a contract, all is fine print. Jesus puts it right before us. Following him means hardship and obscurity. It challenges our priorities. It, it, it reorients our focus. And, and as I've been chewing on this text for the last couple weeks, what I love and what I struggle with is this, that we don't have so many details within this story that I'd like to see. We don't get the timestamps of exactly, you know, it seems like one happened after another after another. We, we don't have the exact timestamps. We don't have the facial expressions of the individuals that were interacting with Christ and... The, the people that were around them, we do not have the results of these lives. I was wondering, right after this in chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72, and I wonder, like, were any of these three guys within the 72 that were sent out by Jesus? Did they say, okay, Jesus, yes, I'll let, like, we, we don't get the same result as the rich young ruler who went away sorrowful. Like, we don't get any of that. I've got a lot of questions around that. But what we do have is we have simplicity and we have clarity. There is this road that Jesus is on and inviting us to, and if we approach him, he, and yeah, I want to follow you. He goes, yeah, giddy up. There's this rabbi who is, yes, so much more than just a teacher or a rabbi. And there's this call that continues to ring throughout the ages, and that is this follow him in hardship in obscurity, evaluating priorities, having an urgency in this life, proclaiming the kingdom of God and a focus on him. And the most wonderful promise of it all is that he meets us there. What we get on this road is Jesus himself. And as you continue to read this story, Jesus not only calls his disciples to this, but he embodies it himself. And he says, yeah, there's going to be sacrifice, but I'm not going to call you to sacrifice in a way that I'm not willing to go first in. I've used the illustration before of the, the boss who calls you to things that they aren't willing to do themselves and how frustrating of an experience that can be. But Jesus meets us there and goes first on this road.
to lay down his life for us. To, to rise from the dead, which means he has this majestic, glorious power of resurrection that he then imparts to his people to do the impossible. Because I, when I look at the mirror, I often don't. The mirror's like here in our bathroom, so I don't look at a mirror often. Uh, fun fact about me. But when I do, I know I am resistant to hardship. I don't love, I've learned to love more, obscurity. Uh, I don't want my priorities challenged because they're awesome. I hesitate and don't have urgency. And good Lord, if anybody has a scattered focus, it is uh, old Johnny Two-Bits right here. <laughs> and so I look at this. I, I don't really, in and of myself, when I look at the mirror, I don't automatically want to sign up for that. But there's this miracle of grace and regeneration and new life and all this gifts that Christ gives to his people and those that would follow after him imperfectly that you then look at it and after a little bit of time you go, I'll sign up for that. They know this road with Jesus is going to be better and more beautiful than anything else through the pain, through the heartache, through the loss, through the grief, through the sorrow, through the, all of it because Jesus himself is there with his people along the road and is better than anyone or anything we ever could imagine. And so he's announced his kingdom. He's taught what life in it is like. He's demonstrated. And I believe he longs for us and loves to be with us in it. And so let's go with him. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you that you are honest about not only who you are, but what it is like to follow after you. And I'll be the first to admit, Jesus, that I am prone to want to believe a low-key prosperity gospel that says if I'm a good person on a sliding scale of mine um, and do some of the right things that that equals certain outcomes. And, and you never promised me or us that, but you have promised us yourself. And so today, may we be realigned and may our focus yet again be on you. As the old song says, may we turn our eyes upon you, Jesus. Look full in your wonderful face. And may the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. As we respond, may you bring about a, a fresh and new sense of faith in you, uh, repentance of sin, and joy in the gifts that you have given us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.